This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Mr. Hamilton, how goes it? God, I can never tell what holiday it's going to be with you. Like the other day it was, I was French. Today it's kind of back to Halloween and we're two weeks out from Christmas already. Yeah, um, crazy. It's unbelievable. Um, hard to believe that, uh, that yeah, 22 is on the way out and 23 is on the knocking on the door. Crazy. Yep. Yeah, and we're almost back to normal. Touch wood, knock on wood, whatever you want to knock on. Let's let's hope things stay the way they are and keep trending upwards for, uh, for gathering. So, yeah. Yeah, it's all good. Uh, so this is a, a real cool episode where chat with Mark Peterson and um, just there's nothing this guy doesn't do. Uh, you know, his legacy, he's a young guy. He's, you know, he, he's, he's done a, a ton of stuff already. Uh, he started um, MVP Outdoor Adventures. Uh, they do fantastic work. His, his, uh, I don't know if anyone's had the opportunity to watch this stuff, but it's... Uh, the thing I love about Mark's stuff is he always has that conservation ethic. He's always talking yeah. about uh, his Utah sheep hunt with the Navajo Nation. He talks about the transplants that's being done there, the good work that's being done. Uh, he's a big supporter of the Wild Sheep Foundation. Um, and then, you know, just always the right message. Uh, he currently runs the biggest uh, outdoor booking agency in the world when it comes to tag services. So Worldwide Trophy Adventures. Uh, he purchased from Cabela's their uh, their tag system, so uh, he's got his finger in so many pots and and does a great job while he's at it too. Obviously, surrounding himself with good people, right? So. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, he is. And just what a story! Just just grabbed it and ran, and has created quite possibly the world's largest uh, tag tag issuance place, right? Where they they had they help you apply for your your once in a lifetime tags and what like just looking at the animals he's been been blessed enough to hunt and then we get into some pretty cool stories and it, it as much as a hunting episode you think this would be it really wasn't talking about hunting it was about the, the whole s- story of him and his upbringing and his why which is so important in this day and age right and the conservation and some of the challenges we face as hunters with the non-hunting community you know mm-hmm. some of the things we've dealt with there and you know, dealing with those challenges. So yeah, you know, this guy, this guy's the real deal. Um, I was really excited when he agreed to come on the show because we were going to talk about all these different issues and, um, you know, growing up on a farm, you know, and that's the one thing I sort of felt a kinship with him, I guess, growing up on the farm is, you know, Mm -hmm. conservation and putting back is so important as a a farmer or rancher. If you don't look after your, your stock or your land, you're doomed. Like that's, that's the kiss of death. So you know, giving back as a farmer and putting things back into the the resource is absolutely critical. If you don't do that, you have nothing, right? And he grew up on a, a fruit tree farm, and you know, fifth generation fruit tree farmer, so he gets that aspect of it. Not saying that people that aren't farmers or ranchers don't get that, but I think they, you know, coming off the landscape, you really understand that, right? Oh, totally, totally. You you got to put your your investment first, so to speak. Right. So he tells the story beautifully and I think it's a fun podcast where everybody's going to enjoy his story. Yeah, absolutely. And he's also working on his triple threat, which is 
Um, we don't really go into what it is uh, during the, sh- the show, but uh, it's a triple weapon super slam. So it's basically getting the North America 29. Um, you can look that up if you don't know what it is, but uh, North American 29 with three different weapons, uh, a bow, arch- sorry, archery bow, and uh, also a muzzleloader and a rifle. Mm-hmm. And so he talks about where he's at on that and that quest that he's going through there. Uh, very cool story. But again, he's always telling that conservation story. So again, you think, oh, this guy's a killer, you know, but no, he's he's more about putting back and putting animals on the, on the landscape than he is about taking them. So yeah, uh, yeah. About, yeah, just just we can keep going about that, but we got some housekeeping we need to do. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, always keeping me to five minutes on the intro. Okay, thanks, buddy. <coughs> oh, my goodness. Sorry, you're gonna have to edit that. All right, the raffle. Uh, Raffle tickets, gift of conservation, merchandise, uh, membership promotion. It's two weeks to Christmas, just over. You got enough time. If you get on our website, pick any of this stuff up, we'll get it out to you. You can buy raffle tickets for your buddies, your loved ones, yourself. Um, You can do a gift option on our website. Unfortunately, you got to be in BC to do that. So for our, our international listeners or outside of BC, sorry, but if you're in BC, Buy a gift. We got anywhere from ten to a hundred bucks, so you can spend ten bucks on a buddy. They're perfect stocking stuffer. Couldn't be better. Tons of merchandise on our website. We've got some sales on right now, um, and Steve is guaranteed you're going to get those out. Uh, and get them in time for Christmas if you order them by what? What's our date? The seventeenth, eighteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth. Yeah, Canada Post says if we can get them into the mail by the nineteenth through twenty first in BC, you'll have it to your door. So we'll do our best to. To get it to you, uh, we'll, they'll they'll be out by then, and then it's up to Canada Post. So yeah, so that's what they guarantee. For the hunter in your life, for the conservationist, or for your home office, pick up a calendar. They're uh, I think they're twenty five bucks. They're dirt cheap. Twenty two uh, fifty right now. Yeah, they were on sale. I don't know if they'll still be. I guess yeah, you're keeping oh, them right. for Christmas. Yeah, yeah, oh, oh, that's so. good. Uh, I just picked one up. I just ordered one, and I, I seen your daughter was helping fulfill that order. So anyway. Great opportunities there. We have a membership promotion. So this is the uh, basically giving someone a gift of a membership. And we've talked about it on the podcast before. Sign up and you sign someone up, buy them a membership, and you get entered into a chance to win. It's a $1,000 gift certificate with any of our conservation partners. So this is your chance to win something as well. And then, of course, you know, get somebody involved with conservation in wild sheep. Love to have them. So. Yeah, absolutely. that's our push. That is, that is. So, yeah, got a couple more great episodes by the end of the new year that we'll be rolling out. So, yeah, enjoy. And let us know who you want to hear from. We listen to you guys. So, if there's someone you want, communications at wildsheepsociety.com, and we'll do what we can to get them on the show. So, with that, episode 104, Mark V. Peterson. Enjoy. The perception of hunting you know, has changed. It's our duty now, our responsibility as hunters, to change it back. And we've spent the last few decades trying, you know, espousing that that message, preaching that message about wildlife conservation. You know, it's fallen on deaf ears, all of our attempts. I think what what we have to do is is maybe uh, appeal to the emotional side or the visceral side. We have to tell our story. We know what we are. We know how deeply we care about wildlife. It's just the people out there that are, that are you know, voting to get rid of hunting, they don't understand our stories. Sometimes we, we have to translate it to something that they understand. 
Well, good morning, uh, Mark, and welcome to the podcast. I guess, uh, what are you, are you on the uh, Central Time Zone, 11.30 for you, or what are you at, time-wise? No, we're uh, East Coast here, 12.30. Okay, 12:30. Yeah, right on. So good good afternoon. Um, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for making this happen, man. It's really, really cool to connect with you. Yeah, no problem. Looking forward to it. I always like that Canadian accent you're going with, too. <laughs> we'll throw some A's in there, and we'll we'll, we'll maybe get uh, get our toques out and such. But uh, it's perfect. Yeah, we we get a lot of harassment for that. But you know all about Canada better than anyone, so I've I've been up there quite a few times. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Um, hey, so Mark, let's just start off. Um, you know, not many people out there don't know who you are, but uh, maybe just give us the high level view of Mark Peterson, what you do, where you're from, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Born and raised in uh, Shelby, Michigan. Actually, still live here today with my family. I've got uh, three kids, and it happens quick. I've got a senior in high school this year. They'll be going to college next year. It's my son, and then two daughters, with my youngest being 13. Um, anybody that watches my videos has seen my youngest, Shelly. She, she's with me as much as I can get her away from school or, or from sport. She's usually with me in the field. Um, but yeah, I guess I've been in the outdoor industry full-time now for pushing 10 years as, as time flies here. I'm um, nine and a half years in. And when I first got in the hunting industry, I started filming. So it's been nine and a half years of filming. And I just added up the other day, I'm over 220 linear episodes that I've, that I've done on film and been in the digital world now for about two years as well. So it, it seems like I just started yesterday, but looking back at it now, it's been, it's been a while. Yeah, absolutely. And and I just want to just shout out to you on the great work that you do and, you know, your story, your messaging, uh, and obviously the filming's fantastic. I just love the conservation ethic that you have through everything that you do, but we'll, we'll jump into that a little bit in, in a second okay. here. So let's start off. I know you come from uh, farming roots. You grew up on the farm. Yep. I did too. Um, one of the cool things that I, I, I love about your backstory, talk, let's talk a little bit about tree farming and how yep. you're how you're doing what you're doing and not farming yeah so i'm a, a fifth generation fruit tree farmer or what i guess better better put I, I was a fifth generation fruit tree farmer my uh my father was a rather large tart cherry farmer he also did peaches apples for a while asparagus for a while but mainly towards the end was uh one of the largest tart cherry farmers that there was in the world um, when I was, when I was actually born in 1983 was one of the worst fruit crop years. Um, so he, he always tells the story. He remembers sitting on the front porch with, with myself in his hand, talking to my mom on what they were going to do. And they decided what we were going to fight through. And it wasn't a year later, they started processing their own cherries. Um, and at that time they just processed their own cherries year one, Year two, they process their two neighbors' cherries. Year three, they process five neighbor cherries. Um, to where it, it's grown today, Peterson Farms is the largest fruit, frozen fruit processor for tart cherries, sweet cherries. I think they're third for peaches, number one for apples. They're the largest fresh-cut apple um, facility in the U.S. They do uh, fresh juices. They do concentrate. So they've, they've, they've grown. And I, I look at that as like, that's the American success story of what my dad built from really being a, his, his back roots were being a teacher and he left being a teacher to be a farmer and then became a fruit processor and has, has grown the facility to what it is today. Um, my brother and sister still work there. My dad, who's 75, who I know every, if, if you've watched any shows with me, you've seen him cause he's in about, about half of them and just love, love spending time with them now. Um, but yeah, he just, he built that from nothing. Um, 
and I always tell everybody, I, I put a, a solid almost 25 years in working there because as you know, growing up on a farm, there's no minimum age to start work on a farm. So I remember mowing cherry orchards at eight and 10. And then, I mean, working inside the processing facility when I was 16, um, running a single, a single plant when I was going through college between 18 and 22. When I graduated college, I became VP of operations for Peterson Farms. We had five processing plants, um, a large freezer storage at that time. And I did that for nine years. Um, so through that, uh, that's, that's nine full working years. Um, busiest times were during the summer and the fall. Everybody knows being a hunter, being busy in the fall is not ideal timing of when you have to work so much. Um, so I was always the one that were pushing the, the family bounds on times away because I would definitely be getting into the field. And at that time, uh, I loved to trip out to the Dakotas to go bird hunting once a year. And, and about every third year, we'd venture up to Alaska for something. Um, but that kind of led, led to even more of a passion for the outdoors. And I, I realized after, you know, spent 20 some years actually working, even though I was, I was 30 at the time, but that's not what I wanted to do for my life. That wasn't my passion. Like it was my, my father's passion. Um, and this is where you, a lot of family businesses, you hear the horror story of, okay, one of the, one of the siblings doesn't want to work in the family business. And I will say my dad did everything correctly, sacrificed a lot to allow me to transition away from the family business and still keep that family relationship with my brother and sister and, and family that there are no hard feelings over, over me leaving and, and everybody else staying in it. Um, that's, that's one for anybody that studies the dynamics of family businesses, second generation, even into the third generation, there's a, there's a lot of hiccups that happen with that. Um, and I'll always give my dad credit for managing that because he wasn't just managing me on transitioning away. He was also managing my brother and my sister on, on them staying and what that looked like. So with that transition, I always knew I wanted to be in the out, outdoor world. What that meant. I didn't know. I was, I mean, 30, still young to transition in. I tell everybody I, I made the worst decision that I possibly could because the first thing I did was I started up a TV show. So, and I'll still tell this today, being a TV host isn't as easy as what it looks like because being the host on camera, man, that's the fun part. It's all the stuff that happens on the, on the backside, finding the correct partners to be with, um, trying telling that message that really needs to be said versus to have longevity in the industry versus getting a bunch of followers and then sizzling out because everybody realizes, man, you're not good for the industry. You're not telling the right message. You're doing it for followers versus, versus having a true love for it. So that, that was the first thing I did in the, in the industry. Um, I had always worked with Cabela's uh, tags and adventures before that, like they, Eric Pollock there, um, had always set my tags portfolio on drawn tags and any of the trips I booked, I worked with them just, just because they, I, they had the backing, they had the, the knowledge that I wanted before I, before I spent money. So I liked, I like, I liked that booking agency tag service field. Um, so the second thing that I did in the outfitting industry is I, I, I purchased a small boutique booking agency called worldwide trophy adventures, um, WTA. I had two people that worked at the time, two full-time employees in, I say boutique, we dealt with, a, a smaller clientele, we handled their tagged portfolio all the way up to some of the bookings that they did. Um, what I didn't realize is right after that, um, Cabela's put their tags and adventure service up for sale, which was the precursor for their sale to Bass Pro. Um, they wanted to sell that division before they did the, the big sale. 
Um, and I was up in, up in Saskatchewan, actually black bear hunting in the fall, looking at, a uh, a, a waterfall outfitter up there, which, which would lead to be the, the first outfitter acquisition that I did. Um, but at the time I remember getting a call in literally in, in the tree stand from Eric Pollock in the office and said, Hey, Tommy Milner, the CEO of Cabela's at the time just came in and said, we're, we're going to sell this division. You're one of the first people that I thought of. I said, cool. So I went back and, and my dad, who I, I get advice from, he helps me with all my writings. He helps with business decisions, all, uh, anything that is business related. He's, he's my advisor. Um, he came back and he goes, this is one that, that if you're going to make a long run in this, you have to get real serious about going and trying to acquire this. Um, what I, and ultimately over the next four months, I was chosen for the, the, the one to be able to purchase that. What I didn't realize until four years later, I wasn't even close to the highest bid. I was third in line, but a long ways off what the highest bid was for that. Um, the board at Cabela's and decided at the time they weren't going to do this for the most amount of money. Um, they went for the right person to represent that brand that they, they built for, I mean, they had 22 years into it when they sold that division. Um, which meant a lot to me when I found that out, because again, I, I wasn't in it for a short-term dollar. Um, I was able to maintain all the employees that were there, that, that knowledge of employee base that has 20 plus years in there. Eric Pollock still works for me today. I mean, he's the one that originally came up with the tags concept here in, in the U.S. of floating tag fees and so forth. Um, to be able to do that meant, meant a lot. Um, but it also meant we, I went from a small boutique booking agency and, and filming to the largest booking agency in the world, um, basically overnight. So there was a lot of transition that had to happen for me and, and, and what we did with everything else. Um, obviously I, I love the, the TV show part of it. I love filming in the field. I, I love that, that whole part. We kept, kept that going, but we continue to grow WTA. We, we offer more, we're in the fishing now, um, and along the course of what's what's transpired over the last seven years, um, we've actually started to acquire some of our owned outfitters. Um, the reason in the reason for that is we have a large clientele base, and if there's a certain outfitter that makes sense for us to acquire, um, and it fits in what we can do financially as as far as as working it through, as as you guys know, a concession in Canada, they're not giving those things away anymore. So those are expensive when, when you have to go in there and look at a sheep area. But we feel with our background, as we can go in there, and, and there's nothing against guys that, does, that do it this way, but it's just how you have to pay the bills. A lot of guys will go in and be like, man, I had to pay a lot of money for this. I'm going to have to shoot a lot of sheep or a lot of moose to start with in these areas. We're fortunate enough that we don't have to do that. We can go and, and do the correct number of conservation each year for what the species require as, as we acquire these areas. Because, again, we're looking for it for the longevity. And we don't have the marketing costs that a lot of people do when they have to go and find sheep hunters or moose hunters just because of the clientele base that WTA has. So we've, we've actually acquired um, a few outfitters in the last seven years. We've, we've got a, a bighorn area in, the, in Alberta. We've got a stone sheep area in BC. We've got an area for dulls in the Yukon. We've got a Colorado outfit that does all the big game over there. Um, we've got a Kentucky outfit that does whitetails and turkeys. We've got a uh, outfitter in Sonora that does desert sheep, uh, mule deer, coos deer, waterfall. And then we've actually got a turkey outfit in Campeche that does the oscillated turkeys. Um, and I can tell you right now, we've got about four others that are in the works that just that, that fit in our system for what we consider a reasonable payoff for it in an area that looks like we can we can do the correct conservation behind it. That's going to be longevity for the area in a high trophy class area. 
um, that kind of fits what our outfitting is. And, and it's one that we can guarantee our clients a great time if they go there. Um, along the way, we've, we found this team that I've got at Cabela's. I mean, the wealth of knowledge that they have, it's, it's not just in booking hunts and arranging travel and tags and so forth. I mean, they have a lot of, a lot of background behind them. So we've got, there was a, uh, an app based called Huntwise that's in Grand Rapids that was literally an hour away from me. They approached us to be a strategic. So we went on and, and were part of that for a couple of years until they recently sold, um, which helped our brand grow because it, it just got more clients in front and it gave that that app the the knowledge base behind that they really needed to be able to excel. And then when obviously they sold, it gave us a little influx and we were able to go out and acquire a few more outfitters along that because that's our bread and butter. It's not not having an app. We're not an, an app-based company, but we're really one that, that's going to focus on, on bookings, tag service, and, and outfitter areas that we can make the, the biggest impact conservationally. Um, but along the way, we've got a we've got a clothing company now that's called Avies. Um, Hunter Strickland, who's a uh, he's still pitching right now. He he worked with Jason Harrison Akuyu to to start that one up. Bad timing on his part because he did it right before COVID, and then I mean everybody knows COVID changed the world, and it really affected a, a startup company like that that was that was just getting going. Um, so we were able to partner with him. We've got that. We've got a uh, deer attracting company here called Buck Bourbon. Um, which George Cummins who, Cummins, who runs our, our Salt River Lodge in Kentucky, came up with that. And as soon as he came to me with the idea, I said, the one thing you dig it right is you got a catchy name. The bourbon trend is, is not going anywhere. Um, and that name is catchy. And, and over the last two years, we've been, we've been able to get into Walmart tractor supply and are the fastest growing uh, deer attractant. Now we're able to spend that off into hard goods um, as well. So we've got a lot of things going on behind the scenes that, that people don't see up front. Like they think WTA, they think me, they, they see us in the field. Um, they see hunters going all over, having success and a good time. Um, we're quite a, quite a big company now in the, in, in the background, we've got 40 employees in Sydney, Nebraska, that all they do every day is, is book hunts and, and tag services. But we're, we've got about 200 employees spread between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico now for our total operation and, and growing every day. So that's that's kind of that's awesome, Mark. And that's that's me and WTA in a nutshell. So you know, there's no question that you know you're you're a hunter, you're a conservationist. Um, but I think you know people look at you and they look at you and go, yeah, you're definitely an entrepreneur. Um, mm-hmm. Would you say with your with biz, your business WTA and tags was that was there a need for, for more there? Was it, was it, uh, did you go into that niche market because of a need or was it an entrepreneurial thing where it was an opportunity sort of what was the evolution of, of you go, getting into that space and, and getting your start there? Like I thought originally when I went, when I went into the, the, the boutique booking agency of WTA being small, I thought there was a need for a little more TLC for a certain group. That's where I went into that. The Cabela's one was, I mean, everybody knows Cabela's at the time was a huge company. It was a $5 billion company. So if you're starting to talk about companies in the outdoor world, there, there, there wasn't any bigger at the time than what Cabela's was. Um, acquiring that was, was fun over the last couple of years because you've, you've taken that mindset of we're so big, a small part of a big company to, well, we're the largest in that field now. Okay, we control the market now. Like I look at the longevity, I'm, I'm 39 now. I hope not to be out of the industry until I'm in my 70s because I don't know what I would do if I, if, I, if I wasn't in the outdoor world, not necessarily hunting or, or talking about it every day, but just what I would do. 
Um, so I look at that now and we're, we're to this unique place that as a, as a business, everything's going so good. Now we're to the point we can actually make fundamental changes to hunting areas or conservation now. And to me, like, truthfully, I'd always wanted to get here. I never thought like, it's one of those dreams. I never thought we'd be able to actually get here to where we can help on collaring projects. We can help on relocating project. We can help on getting 10,000 acres and, and putting that into a conservation project. These, these things that, that we've got in the works, we've got a, a special conservation foundation that we literally just started in the last year that people will start to see over the next 12 months that literally has some of these projects that have been dreams for me that we can actually have the business behind to basically fund and make them a reality. So that's one thing that, you know, has been pretty consistent with you since you've stepped into this space and certainly with your MVP outdoor adventures and, you know, your messaging there has always been around conservation. Where does that come from? Is that an early ethic from, you know, being on the farm? Is that something your dad instilled in you? Um, where does that come from? What what inspires that, Mark? I think there's a there's a lot that started that. I mean, obviously in the farm, so especially fruit tree farming. You, you got to put a lot of work in up front, like a cherry tree, you plant it and you're not going to harvest it for the first time until eight years. So there's a lot of that work you put in and then you see it evolve. And one of the projects my dad has is, is we have what we call the river property here in Michigan. We own 550 acres, which is, which has taken literally 30 years to get dad's purchased a lot of five acre, 10 acre, 50 acre parcels to get that what it is as, as he's been um, grown his business, he's been able to, to do that. And his neighbors get old and they want to sell and we just acquire that. And our area of Michigan, it used to be when I grew up to go out and see three or four deer was, was something special, not let alone shoot a small buck or, or see a buck. It was just seeing deer. And dad, I think before he even realized what he was doing, had a conservation project on his hands of what he, of what he was doing on this, on this piece of property of adding and, and being able to reduce the number of hunters and building up the habitat. Like he didn't know what he was doing back in the nineties of, of taking this and saying, we're not going to go in here. This is where we're going to let the deer have a safe area. Well, that safe area turned out to be their bedding area. So now all of a sudden you started doing this. And I think through time, I, I saw that, um, and growing up as a bird hunter, I don't know if you guys bird hunt or not, but you can quickly find out on a conservation level. If you, if you go out and look for some roosters on, on farmers that have left the field edge and, and just a little bit of conservation work for those birds versus guys that haven't. So going out and making some trips in the Dakotas with my own, own bird dogs, like you quickly see that and then translate that here to Michigan as a woodcock and grouse guy. Well, as I start seeing hardwoods go away, grouse are starting to go away. Woodcock flight doesn't necessarily happen how it's supposed to. Turkeys start going down. And I just like, for me, I'm like, I love, I love a good time in the field. And a lot of that is where you're hunting. If the conservation's done right, you can increase the numbers and increase what it is for everybody. And it just seems like literally every time I go to the, go and step foot in the field, it's the conservation message behind it of, man, this place is really high successful. If you backtrack that, why is it high success? It's because of the conservation that's been done around it. Or the, the, the big one that I'll, that I'll tell everybody is when I went out and did the Upland Slam in 19. Um, and that, for anybody that doesn't know, I, I went out and there were 26 species of Upland birds. And I, I went out with the goal of trying to get them all in a single season with my own dogs. And I, I, was, I read a book called The Upland Odyssey, which gave me this idea. It was about a guy and his dogs that went out and he did it over a 20-year period, brought his dogs to an area, 
shot the bird over his own dog and, and, and came back. He had two dogs that he did it over. And I just, I, as a bird hunter, I fell in love with that story. The whole concept, the idea behind it, I'm like, man, that's awesome. Because one, you're bringing your dog with you um, and you're learning new areas as the dog learns it. And it's just a new experience and you go out and you may be there for a week and be unsuccessful. I'm going to go back the next year and get it. And I love that whole thing. So in, in, in the outdoor world, especially the TV world, one thing I learned is you've got to try to be a little bit different than everybody of just going out and showing a, showing a whitetail hunt. And at that time, I was, I was known for an international or a mountain or big game hunter, which don't get me wrong. I, lo- I love that. I love all types of hunting. I mean, literally upland, waterfall, sheep hunting, deer hunting, elk hunting, international in Africa, Asia, you name it. I just, I just love being in the field. Um, so at that time, I'm like, man, I've got these bird dogs I've never even shown on a, on a show before just because everybody's told me, well, the ratings are going to be bad. And you know what? I know the ratings are going to be bad, but at 19, I, I had established myself enough that I can take a fall off from my regular filming and, and go and do what I consider a pet project. And the upland market's so small, but by the time that project was over, it helped my brand so much because I established as somebody different, which led to the waterfall slam, the South, Af- the, the South America waterfall slam. Now the, the North America deer slam, like it leads to all these. But the one thing that I learned conservationally from that upland slam, man, upland birds are affected. I would compare them to sheep. Upland birds are affected so much by what happens to their habitat that, and you see the, that upland habitat shrinking. It's not like a white-tailed deer that you see live in a subdivision that's got an acre and a half of woods. It's not like you see the elk that can, that are starting to just live with houses around them in the mountains. It's not like a mule deer that transition, even an antelope, but like the upland bird, if you start ruining their habitat and putting a house in and clearing those woods, they, they're just not going to make it. And every step along, every step of the way, every species I hunted, it was the same message of what's going to ruin this, this upland bird from being able to make it. Well, it's human encroachment. It's farming changes. It's people not caring about the habitat for this specific one. And, and that really instilled in me. It was just, it was repeated over and over every time I hit the field of, man, if, if we don't show this support here, it's not like a pheasant, like everybody loves the pheasant, but a mountain quail, if we don't do something for this or a valley quail or, or any of those oddball ones, like, man, if we don't, if we don't do something around these I don't want to think what the next 30 years is going to look like for these species. And that's just where it really kicked into where I was in the field and just emotionally touched by it at that point that, man, no, this is going to be my front and center. This is, I know it's, it's not the sexy thing to talk about. It's, it's, it's not 180 inch whitetail, but like people just need to hear this and what, what true battles are facing all these species. And that kind of led from upland into waterfall, how the, how the, migration happens and it just anytime i'm in the field now like that's that's my focus like yeah a great hunt put it out there for an entertainment value but more importantly what what does the future look like for this what is what does it need in this area so with with this messaging how has that affected your rating so you know like you said it was your pet project you know you're willing to take that risk what has that done for for ratings and affected you so like i, I look at it as a couple ways I get a lot of messages on going into an area from people in that area of going, thank you for telling the message here. If it's international, if it's in Austria or Africa or even the Dakotas, Colorado, of telling, telling the message of what's really affecting here. Like I get those messages from people in that area of saying, thank you. Nobody's ever come here and just, you know, we went mule deer hunting, but you really told the story behind it. It was always just, hey, look at this. 
shot a good deer like what what goes into it from a landowner's perspective of making this making this be successful um now like i don't want to consider myself an old soul on on tv but i probably don't have that craziness factor to catch some of the youth in what i in what i do that others do but again at the same time i still get a lot of a lot of questions from younger hunters and it's more so on different sets in their states that i've seen i've got 20 acres or 40 acres conservationally what should i do here so i get a lot of a lot of those message and and i look at those are those are the ones i like to take again i don't have that i don't have that flashy mentality behind me i'm i'm built here for longevity and what the industry what i what i consider what the industry needs um i guess that's probably the, the best way i could i could answer that i do get some of hey why 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 didn't you show this shot and i'm like man i i would love to show that shot but i'm i'm just gonna be honest when it hit there was too much blood for me to show and i i can show it on it but i just from a viewer standpoint i don't think i should show that so on like that hit, even though it's a hundred percent good to show on, on the show, I just chose like me and the team are like, we're just, there's no reason to show it. There's no reason to show that type of stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. Eh? We're seeing a bit of an evolution. We've certainly seen it in the outdoor space and, the, and mm-hmm. TV. Um, you know, you've seen that um, and you tell the story differently. And it's interesting to see now, uh, I think things are changing too in our space you know there's i guess like with the evolution of like meat eater and mm-hmm. stuff like that there's a lot of adult onset hunters that are more conservation focused i think like when i grew up with hunting right i you know when i was four or five years old i was out in the field uh like you were and and so you don't you're not really thinking you know i guess you're living the conservation story but you're not really thinking yeah. of it and then eventually at some point you're like oh i got to give back right and you know and that's yep. what you're doing so i think there's a bit of an evolution in what we're seeing mm-hmm. here too um and like steve you're an adult onset hunter too right you, you know you didn't get into this as a as a kid so i think the mentality is a little different um but um yeah fantastic Let, let's talk about on the conservation side of things mark mm-hmm. um you talked about your businesses and 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 saying okay well i got these outfits now i don't need to milk every dime out of this i'm gonna put money back into the the outfit grow my sheep or grow my whatever resource it is big mm-hmm. um, and make sure we have a healthy population. Talk about how, how, how does that work? Does it work all the time? You, obviously you have guys on the ground there. They probably think a little differently or at one point did think differently. No, no, yep. we've got to get every client as many. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So I, I've got a couple examples of this too. And we've, we've got some great guys on the ground that obviously manage our, our areas um, in the, in the Yukon, our dull sheep area. Well, when we, when we made that, that purchase, like everybody runs their numbers. If you're buying, it doesn't matter if you're buying an outfitting area or if you're buying uh, a small business in, in a downtown rural area, you're, you're working your numbers on how to figure out how to pay for this and, and what it's going to do for you financially. It doesn't matter if it's outdoor world or whatever, you're doing that. So you run your, you run your initial numbers on how many hunters you can go through, what the cost of those hunts are going to be, your best estimate on expenses, which has been completely thrown out the window the last year but you, you try to run your numbers the best you can and in our year we, we based our yukon area on being able to run 12 or 14 hunters but then you know mother nature kicks in there and all of a sudden three years ago nobody wants to say it there was a bad winter from alaska all the way through the yukon and it took out age classes of sheep we're no different than any other outfitter that that's there we looked at it and you know like the first thing is is rob Aston who runs our area he he called and he goes, man, the, the sheep numbers are down. I'm seeing a ton of seven-year-old rams. 
but the older Rams were just, they're not there like they were last year. The winner, the winner got some of the old guys. And he's like, I'm not sure how many hunters we're going to be able to run. And I, I went, I just asked him, I said, Rob, what's a safe number that we're going to be able to sustain and, and not part of it, not have our guys go up there for running 14 and we only shoot seven to 14. That's not how we as a business continue to get guys to repeat book with us. And it's, it's all about, it's all about that in, in the outfitting world is give them a good time. Don't upsell something. Don't have somebody hunting a pile of bones or something that's not there. And at that same time, Rob, what are we going to do to sustain this area? Because it's one that we're not going to run, pay, pay off, and then sell. We're going to have this area hopefully for the next 70 years. And he came back and he goes, man, I think we can, we can sustain eight out of here. He goes, well, in four years, we may be able to get that up to 12 if, if the winter shows right. Because again, we've got, we've got a, a bunch of seven-year-old Rams. So when, when those get to be 10 or 11, we can, we can look at doing it, but let's back it down to eight. So we just, we were fortunate that we can make that call. Did it hurt financially? Absolutely. Did we have some upset hunters on that original one to where we had to call? Because now all of a sudden you're looking at, we had to reduce down four to six hunters a year for the first three years. So we, we dealt with, I think it was 14 or 15 hunters that we had to call and be like, man, we don't feel good about you going there just because of this winter kill. We have, we have to move you around. And of course our next year's full. So now you're moving the guys from at that time, it was the 21 hunt into 22 and 22 to 23. So everybody's a little upset, but at, at that same time, they, everybody gets that initial wide, I'm set to go in 22. And now you're telling me I can't go until 23. Well, now I'm a little upset. And then they get that cool off period of, Oh, wait a second. I understand why you did it. Yeah, I wish I could have gone in 22, but I 100% understand why you did it. And that's that's the correct move. And, and like I look at this year, we were seven and eight this year. Our eighth hunter shot in clean miss. We stayed after it, but just, I mean, you know how sheep hunting is. Bad weather will put you in a tent for six days. And then all of a sudden on, on day eight, you get your shot and you're like, darn it, try to find that ram again. Next thing you know, your hunt's over. So seven out of eight, I look at it as a, as a, a sheep outfitter, seven out of eight with the eight hunter missing, that that's a pretty good year. And judging from what the guides saw and, and Robbie and the outfitter on the field, I, I don't think we would have wanted to, to take any more Rams than what that was. So, yeah. and then another, awesome. like another one, Saskatchewan, another one that a bad winner can all of a sudden wipe out how many, how many deer you can take. We, we actually have three different deer areas that we run as one. So it's like 180 square mile area that we can run out run outfitted deer hunts on in saskatchewan and i don't remember the ridiculous number of tags we have it's something like 260 total tags that we could run for whitetail guys and we run we run 85 to 90 like that's that's what we run and and it blows guys minds but man we're 100 percent repeat on bookings the age class like we can see it on camera like we're not, the, every six and a half year old deer is not 170 inch deer as you guys know we shoot a lot of seven and a half, six and a half year old deer that are 130 inches. Like we, I went up there this year and filmed and my buddy shot 128 inch, six and a half year old deer. Just a, a perfect one to take out. Um, not the trophy he shot the year before, which is 148 inch nine point, but like one that he was even happy to take out. But that's part of the manage. We're hunting older deer, not necessarily the biggest deer, but that was one of the oldest ones we had on camera. And we're able to do that because we control so much of the area up there and there's, there's resident pressure. But again, Saskatchewan, they're not even that many resident hunters that can control what we're doing from a conservation standpoint in the area. Now, again, Saskatchewan, we're a bad winner away from probably backing down from 90 to 40 or 50. 
that that's the beauty of up north as you guys know yeah absolutely um okay what do i want to talk about here um let's see there's a couple things that you raised um i think what we'll do mark is let's just transition to to the family aspect um yep. now so you obviously grew up on the farm um, mm-hmm. hunted with your father close relationship there he's been on lots of the, the shows a lot of the times yep. Yep. Um, now you got Chelly out there in the field and, um, mm-hmm. definitely the poster kid for, oh, yeah. for, for killing stuff and man. So how important is that to what we do as hunters and, and, and I guess the, the Peterson legacy. So like I, from my standpoint, like I look at it as who do I enjoy being in the field with the most? Like I've got a couple of close friends that I love. I love the, the guides and outfits that, that we have, but man, I've always hunted with dad. Like I, I look at that. It's like, we've always gone places together before I was in the industry. Nothing, nothing's changed there. And I look at the times we had in the field when I was younger and how they influenced me to today, not just in the outdoor world, but in life in general of, you know, sometimes the hunt's not easy. It's not going to be a day. You got to go through it for five or six days and you're going to come home empty handed on what that does for, for a psyche and living in the real world. And I, I look at being able to do that with Shelly now um, and as you guys know, having kids between school and sports, like it's, it's a full-time thing. And I tell everybody with Shelly's schedule, if I can get her in the field with me for eight days to 10 days a year is saying something because her, her schedule is busy. Like the fall is right in the middle of school. It's right in the middle of basketball season to be able to pull her away from a group of friends and be able to do that for eight to 10 days. And I look at the, the one-on-one relationship that you can have with your kid in the field while doing that. That's like best time I'm never going to get back if I gave that up and she's 13 she's a blink of an eye away from being 18 and off to college and then everybody knows college is four years that I hope I can get her back but she's going to be going through a lot and then she will graduate from college and she'll be off in a job and how much can I get her away there to share that experience and it's my hope that when she has a family of her own that she goes back to that outdoor roots and you know she may not hunt 10 days a year but she'll at least have that to let her kids go with grandpa in the field. And then that'll get that passion there and so forth. Like, and it's that generation passing of those skills in the outdoors that I think everybody sees that we're, we're missing. And like, I see it as it's coming back now, like even, even new hunters coming in the field that didn't have somebody in their, in their family that was hunting. And now they're into hunting and you see, they're like, man, this is really great. Not just because I can get meat for my family or that time away. It's, it's great for me mentally. And I want to get my kids in here because now I'll have one-on-one time to where we're not watching a game and you're not really talking or we're both on our phones or or uh, some other event to where you're at a, a friend's house and they're talking to their friends and you're talking to your friends and you're not really there. Like for a one-on-one parent relationship with your kids, there's nothing that beats the outdoors. Yeah, I, I think that's where we're seeing the messaging change come from that we talked about about 10 minutes ago mm-hmm. is is the fact that there's so many people we're trying to to to, to recruit, for lack of a better term, into mm-hmm. preserving the, the heritage and, and passing it down to the generations. And we, we're realizing quickly that if we don't do that messaging properly, we're, we're going to lose it on all fronts because we're under attack, as, as you know as well, yep, when it comes exactly. to firearms and hunting and predator management and you name it, we're under attack. Mm-hmm. So we've we've had we've been forced to adapt to to, to that messaging change and mm-hmm. and almost soften it in a in a way so the the non hunter can understand it and make it more palatable. And it's yep. just been a, a great evolution to watch 
how how things have rolled out and, and you touched on it perfectly about passing it down to your kids because so i got a 10 year old daughter that uh she loves hunting she's studying her her hunting book right now and she loves coming out with me and she knows where her food comes from and that's the only way we're going to preserve it for generations is to is to make sure yep. that we, we pass it down and do it right yep and you mentioned a, a key there that we are against battles every everywhere you, everywhere you look as a hunter you're against a battle if, it, if it's guns having the right to hunt you guys in canada are facing them just like we're facing them here in the u.s um if it's about predator management like we're just getting into that to a lot of our western states even here in michigan and the up we've got wolves you guys have been dealing with that for a long time can i can you hunt a, a grizzly bear can you hunt a wolf can you what do you have to do for wolves a lot of people especially down here in the states like it's so different they don't understand a wolf is a natural born killer and you want to talk about keeping moose around you can't have that many wolves around and so here in michigan now all of a sudden we've got wolves in the up it is hurting our deer herd in the UP. So now you're starting to hear, man, where'd all the deer go? We must be hunting too many. No, not, the hunter numbers are down. Harvest numbers are down. Wolves are natural born killers. And if they're in a pack, a white-tailed deer is nothing to them. A moose is nothing to them. Like it, it, they're natural. So you have to control those predators. So how do you tell, how do you tell that story mm-hmm. of being able to convince? Again, you're not convincing the hunters. You're not, you're That's not right. convincing the hunters. The hunters are behind you. And I look at it as, you're not going to convince until they're 10% hunters. Say there's 10% hunters. You're not going to convince the 10%, I don't use crazies, the 10% anti-hunters. You're never going to convince them. They're, they've got their set in the mind. You've got 80% of people in, this, in the middle. So when it goes to votes on things, it's 80% in the middle whose messaging is going to win. And it's telling the story. Like I look at it as you can't tell a, glor- a, a glory story on it. You can't show a pack of eight wolves getting shot. Like you can't, you can't do that because those people in the middle are going to look at it and the anti-group just needs one picture of that. And they can blow that one picture out and affect so many voters in the center to where you're like, you, your messaging has to be on point of, and tell the story of why we're doing it. Like, why do you have to control the wolves? Because we love moose hunting. They're affecting caribou herds. Like, why do you, why are you having to, to do these management plans in, in for wolves? Like you have to tell the story behind it. It's not just about a, a quick 30 minute episode of, of wolf hunting. What does mm-hmm. that do for everything in the area? What does it do for moose? What, what does it like? What does it do now show the real one is okay. Now show if, if the wolf population isn't touched, what it does to the, 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 the moose population show what, show what that 15, 20 year evolution is in the, in the future. And that's, that's the messaging that I think you're seeing everybody come back to now and predator control is one of them, but it's even hunting in general of, okay, everybody wants to go out and shoot 180 inch whitetail, right? We all, we all do. Everybody loves a big mule deer, giant sheep. Like every, everybody's doing that. But the messaging behind it of what's the conservation that goes into it and how does that affect the overall herd? I think that's more of it. Where does the meat go? Yeah, we all love the meat, but I think for a while there, nobody really showed what we did with it. Mm-hmm. Like I, like, like I look at the ones, and I, but I think you can take that too far of saying, "No, I'm a, I'm a straight meat hunter." Well, that's that's too far. Let's talk about really what what we are as a whole of being being a hunting population. We love to we love to hunt for the biggest and the oldest, but we'll take care of the meat. We love a we love a doe season because now we can guarantee we can guarantee that. But at the same time. 
we want to control the population. So you can't have too many predators in there. You have to control the predators. Do we want to see the predators gone? No, we don't want to wipe those out. There's a balance for everything. But we we know what Mother Nature will do in the in our world. And everybody can say, well, that's not what what it was attended when when nobody was here. That's correct. Humans weren't here. Think about how humans have affected how a moose can travel, how their population expansion or an elk out west or sheep. Think about how humans have affected sheep. Well, now we have domestic sheep and we all know what domestic sheep do if we put them next to wild sheep. Like we we did that ourselves. So now we've taken their habitat and and changed it. So our our conservation, our approach to how we manage wildlife has to change as we as we change. And it's our responsibility as hunters to show that correct messaging to, again, not affect the 10% of hunters or the 10, 10% of anti-hunters. It's that 80% in the middle when it goes to a, to a vote that we have to affect. Nailed it. I couldn't have said that any better. And you, you hit on the yeah. keyword balance, right? We, we have yeah. to maintain a balance when it comes to anything. We can't, we can't hunt things and manage things based on, uh, perceived edibility or cuteness or whatever the, the, the next big fundraiser is. We have yep. to, to manage accordingly because as, as you stated, we humans are around, we've made an impact and it's, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a sad fallacy that we can leave things to balance themselves. Right. Uh, the anti hunters a few years ago did that beautiful piece uh, on how wolves change rivers in Yellowstone. Right. And when we know yeah. a, a propaganda piece, it was well done, yeah. but you, you still see it used to this day talking about uh, the impact. But even when it's be, mm-hmm. been debunked by science, but yeah, it's, it's, it's balance and we, we owe it to, to wildlife to, to, to keep that balance, to, to mitigate our own impact. Yep, exactly. And then like we, t- we talked about the younger generations, like if you look at the the world today, not just U.S. and Canada and in Mexico here in, in North America, but all over, like look at look at what the youth had to go through for, through COVID and cell phone use and social media and so forth. You can't tell me that there's not a healthier activity for youth to do than get outdoors. You 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 can't tell me that there's not something to help them realize not everything they see on their phone or on their screen or social media is the gospel or what really goes on in the world. You can't tell me getting them away from that and going into the outdoors doesn't help their, their mental stability or, or help them grow as an individual. You can't tell me that like that. That's, that's something that if, if you're, everybody talks about mental health and so forth, well, look at kids that get out, get outdoors and hunt and spend time. Look at how they, they perceive things differently than, than kids that don't. I'm I'm also a basketball coach, so I deal in high school and middle school. So like this is this this gets me going because I get to inter- interact with kids basically from 18. Man, I coach all the way down to to seven year olds now. So I see what what they do on a day to day basis. Who gets out? Who does what? What sports affect? How much of their like I every every new team that I have like I, I coach at a high school and we just started our season last night was our first game, and so we at the start of practice. Two and a half weeks ago, I uh, one of the first questions I asked is, "Everybody's got a phone. Everybody has a phone now. Who's on social media?" And I'll go through all the all the the main apps, and there'll be one or two that doesn't have the main apps, but all the other ones will have TikTok, Instagram. They laugh at Facebook because that's what old people do. Um, this be real, like they've got a whole bunch of different ones that I that I haven't even heard of that that they're on, and they're on them daily for hours. 
And then you'll ask who, like I always ask who, who gets outdoors and they're like, what's outdoors. And there'll be a few, like out of a team of 12, I'll have in my area, which I consider pretty rural, three or four that hunt with their, with their family. And I can tell that their screen uses and social media usage is down compared to the other ones. So like, I, like I, I, I love dissecting in, in my small little school area here, just what that, what that does and, and their mental state compared to kids that don't have that. Like I, I can, I a hundred percent see it every day. Yeah. Speaking of the outdoors, I'll just touch on this real quickly. Uh, I'm not sure if you know, Jared Frazier from, uh, uh 2% for conservation, but he did a beautiful story for us on one campfire. And there's a little quote in here talking about how he took a school group out from downtown Milwaukee. And it says, they went silent immediately. And then I heard the sniffles. They were coming from adults as much as the kids. Only one person in that group of 200 or so human beings standing on that beach had ever seen the stars before me. Right. It's just, it, it talks about how we're losing that connection. Yeah. And for the last 20 minutes, we were talking about how we get it back. And uh, I, yeah. I think we're onto something here. So, Mark, from your perspective, you know, you, you do a great job of, of all these things that we're talking about. You telling the conservation story, talking about balance, talking about, you know, how human impacts, uh, you know, loss of habitat, all that stuff. But, you know, a lot of what we talk about that concerns me is it's the echo chamber, right? You know, it's you talking to me about it, about to Steve and, and other people. And your show has great reach, but we know it's not talking to the 80%. Um, maybe it's talking to the 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 twenty percent or thirty percent, but not the eighty for sure. So, you know, how do we change that narrative? How do we, you know, what that's the one that's the thing I see is our big challenge is I think we're saying the right stuff, we're just not saying it to the right people. And how can we how can we change that? And how can we use your, you know, how do we get somebody in downtown LA to tune into your show um, or or get that message? I guess correct. And so some of the some of the some of the projects we're not quite ready to to talk about yet, but some that some that we're working on. Are larger, larger projects not built to release on outdoor TV? Like you, we have to get them on different platforms. Like Netflix is tricky with what you can release. Meteor did a good job getting on there, and and like I, I don't necessarily always agree with everything that they that they that anybody shows truthfully, but what they show. But I think what he does to get on Netflix and affect that Netflix group, I think I think is good for the outdoor industry. Not affecting the, the the hardcore hunters, but I think that gets enough people to realize, man, okay, this is I never thought of it this way. But there are a lot of other platforms, be it social media, um, that we can reach with projects that are, you know what, they're going to be a softer project than than one of my traditional linear shows. They are because the the whole project is going to be built around a conservation or a species. What affects this species? And yes. We are going to hunt through it because that's part of it. What does that hunter give back to that? Like, that's what we want. And if it reaches another million or 2 million people, hopefully it affects 1.3, 1.4 to when someday there's going to be something on the ballot in their state that goes, we want to stop this or we want to ban this, that that person can look back. Because again, you're not affecting them at that time. It's something that they're going to go back on later in the future and, and vote on at some point in time that they sit there and go, huh, okay, I remember seeing that, or I remember my grandpa hunted, or my uncle hunts. My Man, my uncle hunts, and he brings my nephew out, and they just have the greatest of times when we sit there at Thanksgiving and they talk about it. 
like those, those things, like you're just putting little things in their mind to when they go to that ballot box that they can look back on and remember. Yeah. Well said. Um, yeah. And I guess that, you know, that's it. You know, the antis have kind of been playing the long game and we kind of, we realized we had a problem about a decade ago or whatever yep. that was. And we mm-hmm. kind of went, holy crap, we need to do something here. Um, and we needed, we thought we needed to solve it overnight. And I think that, you know, I think one of my takeaways from your statement there, Mark, is we, we got to play the long game too. We just got to mm-hmm. continue to educate, do it in the right way, be authentic with our messaging and, and play the long game. And we're not going to fix this overnight. It took 30 years to go sideways on us. It's probably going to take another 30 to get it straightened out. So. Exactly. And it, it's, it's one of those things like there is no go and do this project and it's over. There, there's there's no there's no magic trick like that that we can do and just go and say oh, that's it we're done now now we're back on top it's it's the small things every day that we that we can do and that we can show and you guys know how how so many things are affected by by small groups it's a it's a small friend group it's a family group it's a church group it's something like that that is done and I think there was a period of time that you couldn't say you were a hunter and I think since COVID. I'd say it. I think you can, like, there's some of those groups that you can say you're a hunter now. And out of a group of 10, okay, there may be one other person. That's cool. Don't talk about it all the time, but just talk about the great time that you had or what you saw. Like, don't always talk about the the harvest that you had. Talk about, man, I had a great day this morning in the deer stand. I saw 78 different deer, four different small bucks. It was love to see them chase during the rut. And yeah, we put some work in and we've just really been doing this and watching the numbers numbers go up. And then those people will sit there and be like, I know he's a hunter, but he didn't shoot everything. Like that's, that's what the, the far anti want everybody to believe is that if you're a hunter, you shoot Bambi all the way up every time you go to the woods and, and you got blood all over yourself and you're carrying it out. And, and that's, that's what they want to perceive us that. That's not what we are. Everybody knows that's, that's not what we are as hunters. Like if we, if, if that was truly us, there wouldn't be anything left anyway. Right. If they, if we did what they perceived us to do every time we hit, hit the woods, there wouldn't be any deer left. There wouldn't be any turkeys left. There wouldn't be any sheep left. They would just be gone. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Awesome, man. Well, um, before we go, I want to hear about, uh, some hunting stories. So where are we at now with the triple weapon super slam? Where are we at with what's going on there? So I have, so I mentioned that I mentioned that I'm, I'm coaching. So I took, I took over after, after COVID, it was one of those things. I, you got a lot of time at home and I, before COVID, I was traveling about 175 to 180 days a year. Um, and my wife knows that number because she tracks it on a calendar. Um, but I was I was traveling a lot, and it was during COVID. You're home, and, I, and it was one of those moments. I'm like, my kids are old. Like the beauty about me is when I was in the field, I was gone. But when I was home, my home office is here, and I'm with my kids. I used to drop I drop them off at school. I still drop my youngest off. Drop her off at school. Pick her up from school after school activities. When I'm home, I'm home. But when I was gone, obviously I was gone. But what I realized is, holy smokes, I've only got at that time six more years and my youngest is out of the house. The next thing I know I'm staring at my wife all day and which is, which is good. I mean, that's, that's good. But you're like, you spent so much time with your kids and, and it just hit me like, and when they're out of the house, I'm never going to have, I'm never going to have that again. Like they're going to go to college. They're going to have their own families. Like it's, it, it's not. So I, I realized that, man, I want, I want to, I want to be, I want to be there and do more for the last while until they're out of, until they're out of the house. Um, my youngest love basketball. I love basketball. It's our mutual besides hunting. Um, so I'm like, man, I'm going to coach your middle school team, which led to, I'm going to coach the high school team, but she's with me in the gym all the time. 
And it's just this mutual love that I can adjust my schedule to film around this. I film more in odd times of the year and, and do that. But I, but I love that. And I'm going to do it for at least the next five and a half years until she's, until she's gone. Um, and then if she's, she's a really good basketball player, if she plays basketball in college, I'm not going to miss a game. You put all the work in, I'm not going to miss a game. I'll, I'll change, change my schedule around that. So now leading into the triple threat. In the fall, my schedule is really busy. So I'm, I'm for a rifle, I'm, I'm missing three. Roosevelt elk, which I had this year, but again, their numbers on the ranch were down. So I, I bumped my hunt again until next year. Um, I'm missing a moose hunt, which I'm coaching in the prime time of, of moose season. So eventually I'll get that last moose with a, with a rifle. And then I got a central, bar, central barren ground caribou, which I've got, got set for next year. Um, so I'm three away on the rifle. I want to say with a muzzle loader, I'm at 12 now. And with my bow, I'm at seven. So with that project and everything else I've got going, I like for me and, and what I look, I try to get, it's a long project. I try to get three to five a year that I, that I kind of tick off with one of the weapons that fit in the schedule and, and with everything else that I do. But that's, that's been a fun one for me because again, before I started that, everybody's like, he's an international rifle hunter. And we all know the the mm-hmm. bow hunter stigma against rifle hunters and, and so forth like that. And then, and I just realized, you know what? I hunt with all of them. Always have since I've been 12. I might as well show them all. And now I'm like, I'm going to show them all throughout the year as much as I can because there shouldn't be a stigma of a guy that goes rifle hunting versus a guy that's an archery hunter or a guy that uses a compound bow versus a traditional bow. Because guess what? Maybe he's got a reason to use a com- or a, a, a not a traditional bow, a compound or a crossbow. Truthfully, if they're guys that don't practice enough or don't have enough time to go out with a compound bow, I'm okay with them using a crossbow, right? Because they're going to be more ethical in the field than somebody that isn't efficient with a compound bow that goes out. And they want to enjoy more time in the field. Who, has, who truly has trouble with that? Yeah, your neighbor shot a good deer that you had on camera. That's hunting, okay? Don't, don't bash somebody because they're in the field using a legal weapon. And then all of a sudden, like muzzleloader. I love muzzleloader because it adds a little bit. Like if I have a rifle, I can shoot a long ways because I've been in the field. Though. I've done a lot of practicing. Well, with a muzzleloader uh, uh, on a sheep hunt, like I, I was in BC this year on a stone sheep hunt to where I had my muzzleloader with me. And it's different. I got to get closer. I've got to generally, if the, if the wind's down, I still have to get within 200 yards versus having a rifle shot across the, across the canyon at 550 or something like that. So it adds a little bit more into and. I'm going to be less successful with those than I, than I would be. But at the same time, I'm, I'm trying to show through everything that with my muzzleloader, there may be some different areas that I pick to go after certain species than I would with my rifle. There may be different seasons that I would go to with my bow than when I would with my muzzleloader, let alone a different species and just trying to interact those. And then it, what's really cool is when I get all three of being able to tell the story at at the end of the three of I did this for a rifle, I did this for a muzzleloader, I did this with my bow and telling telling that story. And I'm just like everybody. Yeah, I mean, bow hunting for sheep, like I've got my first one set two years from now. I don't think you can prep yourself enough enough for that. I know how many miserable days in a tent I'm going to have to try to get four different sheep species with a bow and how many unsuccessful and, and blisters and all, all that stuff that's going to come with that adventure alone. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge undertaking. Um, you know, I just want to touch on it. Like, you know, there's a bunch of stuff I want to talk here, but the one thing is, you know, 
we just talked about being under attack as hunters, right? You know, and, and how there's the, the 10%, the 80 and the 10%. And the least we can do as hunters is support each other, right? If we're doing it ethically yeah. and conservation eth- uh, front and foremost, I, you know, we, we really have to get on the same page. And, and you talked yep. about that there, you know, um, it's so important. Like you, and that's part of what the anti hunters are playing the long, the long game, right? Well, they realized, okay, what's, what's the best long game. Let's, let's get these groups in, in the middle bickering with e- with each other public land hunters against guys that that can hunt on private land archery guys against the guys that go with rifles and kill everything compound guys against against uh crossbow guys like let's get them all battling because when they're all battling inside they can't work together as a group and now we're as as far anti-hunters now we can win even more battles because they're battling and they're not even voting together on certain things and and i think that's like i think that that's clearing up but there's you have to you have to do it, and that's where I've been disappointed by some guys that have TV shows that they archery hunt and the way that they talk on their TV show compared to guys that may use a a, a crossbow or or a rifle. And you're like, really, you're going to talk bad about a 72 year old guy that's out there using a crossbow? Like that's for me, I've got a serious issue with that. Like you, like anybody that's hunting with the legal that they are in their area. Like you, you can't have a problem with that. You just have to encourage a hunter to be in the field and help them as much as you can. And that was, yeah, that, really that was, well that was a big part of why I came with triple threat one to show, okay, what's the difference between hunting all these species with three different types of weapons. But the other one is I use them all. And I, and people, I've started to use a, a, a crossbow in there too. And that'll probably be what I get the most negative feedback is when somebody sees a trophy pick with me and a crossbow. Why are you using a crossbow? You're a healthy male. I'm like, that's cool. I am. Guess what? I can shoot my crossbow better than I can my compound on certain certain situations. I'll use my crossbow because there are a lot of people that are out there that use a crossbow and and I spend a lot of time shooting my shooting my bow a lot of time. But again, I have the schedule that allows me to do that. And I'll think of somebody that's working sixty to seventy hours a week that really just wants to get out and archery hunt throughout the season six or seven times because that's his quiet spot. He gets to get there and think he's done it for all this time. He doesn't get to shoot his bow as much. He's more, he's more effective with a crossbow. I'm one that believes if he wants to use a crossbow, he hundred percent should be able to use a crossbow if it's legal in the area that, that he's hunting because he's going to be more effective. He feels more comfortable with it, which then ultimately is more ethical in the field. If he's more comfortable with it, more effective with it, he's not going to wound as many deer. Yeah. Right on. Well said. So did you, I, did you get your stone sheep with your muzzle loaded? I did. I did not. Dad and I grinded it out, and just like every sheep hunt, spent about five days in the tent and put on a lot of miles. But again, that that that's sheep hunting. That's why. That's why you love it. At the time, you don't love it. At the time, you question yourself on on why you're doing it and putting yourself through that. But then all of a sudden, even after like nothing stings like an like an unsuccessful hunt, right? Like not, nothing stings like that. Mm-hmm. But then two three days later, you're like, and I learned a lot. I, I learned a lot. I pushed myself as an individually, physically, and mentally to do that. And my dad did that at, at 75. Like he was up there with me at 75 and it was probably a bit much for him towards the end. I mean, we were having to carry, but I looked at what he did at 75 and for him, it wasn't about taking a stone sheep. It was about the experience of being up there with me. It was about showing that at 75, he could be up on some of the harshest conditions that you can be and was able to make it out. Like there, there was that whole story going on right there with him and, and 
man, like I look back, unsuccessful is still a great time. Like, is there any, is there any, a bad time in, in, on top of a mountain chasing sheep? We saw grizzly bear. We saw giant mountain goat. We saw stone sheep, just not the right one. I love that. Just not the right one. That's, that's a cool statement right there. So conservation at its finest right there. Right. So, um, Awesome. Okay. Well, um, we've taken a bunch of your time here this morning or this afternoon for you, Mark. Thank you so much. But uh, for our listeners, if they want to check you out, where's the best place to, to consume your content? Yep. So as we just got done, or at least I just got done basking social media, you got to follow me on social media. I've got Instagram at Mark V. Peterson, old school Facebook for anybody that still does that. Um, YouTube channel. So we just started doing digital um, releases a couple years ago. So you'll catch my Upland Slam on there, Waterfall Slam. Um, all the triple threats as, as we go, we've got sheep hunts all the way down to alligator hunts anywhere in between on there. Um, and then my linear TV show, which is, uh, um, also on, we do 26 episodes a year there. So I'm, I'm still in the field quite a bit with all the coaching and I wouldn't have it any other way. And one, one thing I will add, um, I, I do love feedback. If it's good or if it's bad, I, I love to I love to hear it because it makes me better in the field every day on my messaging. I love I love hearing comments. My best are when I when I obviously when you've done something right and you can pat yourself on the back of somebody saying I, I love this I love this piece that you said or this one liner. But even I learn more from the criticism than anything of, of guys. And it's not some criticism I push to the side, but a lot of it is, man, I wish you would have said this. And I'll sit there and think about it. and I'll be like. I did miss it. I, I missed my chance to say that in the area. I'll pick that up in the next one because I'll add it to my bag of tricks of something that, man, if it fits in this area, I got to make sure to say it. Awesome. Well, we appreciate all you do, Mark. Uh, messaging spot on. Uh, love your work and just uh, keep pushing and keep doing the great work and uh, look forward to, to hearing a lot more from you as we go forward. Appreciate you. Oh, awesome. Thanks for having me on, guys.